With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. This is BC Radio Live with Eric, Lisa, and Philip. Live online at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. Aloha. Tonight on BC Radio Live, we plan to talk to Randy Ellis about his book, Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play, Transforming the Buyer-Seller Relationship. We also hope to speak with Jeff Colvin, author of Talent is Overrated, What Really Separates World-Class Performers from Everybody Else. Today's Wednesday, the 14th day of 2009, and this is BC Radio Live. The chat room is now open at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio, and the live video feed is now running. I am Phil Gwynn, button pusher for BC Radio Live and Chief Geek at BC Magazine, and I am joined tonight by BC Magazine's executive editor, Lisa McKay. Hello, Lisa. Greetings, Philip. Great to have you on the show. And we're also joined by BC Magazine's founder and publisher, Eric Olson. Good evening, Eric. Hello, Philip and Lisa. How are you? We're in a severe deep freeze here, although not the kind of numbers I'm hearing the upper Midwest, we're not below zero, but we're in the teens, and it's chilly. We're headed that, there tomorrow. That's right. We usually get it first, and then it often ends up with you there in yeah, Connecticut. Yeah, we're getting snow. Yep. I love it when I'm able to report 80-degree temperatures while you guys are freezing, but unfortunately it's been pretty chilly here in Dallas as well. Oh, well, what can you do? It was warm somewhere. Where was it? Oh, the West Coast was quite warm, unusually warm. But everywhere else is pretty cold. Lovely. Well, I'll tell you what, we've uh, we've actually got a couple of authors to talk to tonight, and uh, we know I know we have one of them waiting for us. So why don't we uh, jump right in? Uh, this is BC Radio Live, live every week at BlogTalkRadio.com/slash/BCRadio, and co-hosting with Eric and Lisa. I'm Philip. Well, really, I'm I'm just announcing. I guess I'm like the Ryan Seacrest of BC Radio Live. <laughs> yes, but we all know that. Deep down, he's the star of the show. Oh, is that what it is? Yes. Oh, uh, well, I, I'm giving up the second half of this week's uh, American High Hole Part 2 to uh, to be on the show tonight. So uh, hopefully I won't miss anything. i got to tell you, interrupt, I'm I'm done, I'm over. I'm over with American Idol. I, really? Uh, you've, you've given up now? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I didn't watch last season. I mean, I kind of watched the beginning, and then Don and Lily were watching it on and off, but we... Even they never really connected with it the way we had. We missed the first season, but we'd watched every other one. And I just yeah. I realized, man, I just saved hours and hours and hours and hours of time that I'm not sitting <laughs> watching crappy singers singing crappy songs that are really crappy and I hate. Well, uh, Tuesday night happens to be family night at my house. So uh, if we didn't spend that time watching American Idol, we'd spend it watching something else, a movie, uh, and probably something bad like by Disney. So uh, for me, it's not really too much lost time. Although I did state at the beginning of this year that they've got Kelly Clarkson for the ladies, they've got David Cook for the guys, or maybe it's the other way around, uh, and they've got Carrie Underwood tearing up the country charts. I think they're done. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure they're 
they're gonna they're not gonna top that. So it's diminishing we'll, returns at this point. <laughs> we'll see what they manage to do. Anyway, uh, sorry for the uh, the side rail there. I just I just can't help it. Sales often seems to be a game with a winner and a loser, but Randy Ellick has co-written a book called Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play, which suggests that sales doesn't need to be that way. You can find the book on Amazon. It's a Franklin Covey book. And welcome to BC Radio Live, Randy. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad that, that I can join you this evening. <laughs> As are we, we'd be well. talking about the weather and American Idol otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's much more interesting, I think, to talk about uh, talk about books. I, I love hearing about new books. I, I've got a couple of uh, Franklin Covey books, obviously, uh, you know, various books about habits and so on. Um, but this is actually about very specifically sales and transforming this this relationship. That a salesperson ought to behave differently in order to to make sales. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, I'd love to. I think the the fundamental behavior shift we're talking about here is most salespeople focus on what? Their own numbers. Fair? They're trying to make their quota, pay their bills, earn a living, and yet there's an interesting paradox that if you actually stop focusing on your own numbers and start focusing on your clients' numbers, helping them achieve the kind of business results they need, they want, and they value, you'll actually get what you want. And that's the shift that we're actually talking about in the book and, and providing some practical how-to advice to just change that relationship and make it much more productive. It's kind of an Eastern philosophy approach to things. There's this uh, a tenet called Wu Wei in Taoism. Don't ask, I know all this stupid crap. But in, <laughs> by, in Wu Wei, you achieve all, in theory, you know, the phrasing is all, achieve all by doing nothing. And it doesn't really mean doing nothing, but but what it does mean is to sort of absorb the uh, energy and the wants and the desires of, of the people or, or entity that you're working with and reflect those back to them. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, when we talk to customers, pe- commercial buyers out there, and you ask them to share the buying experiences that they thought were the most productive, that yielded the most value, the kinds of things they used to describe those experiences would include, hey, you know, when we were talking with the seller, it was clear they were focusing, focusing on helping us get what we wanted. They were really trying to understand where we were, what we were trying to achieve. And at the end, it was easy to choose them. Sometimes we were willing to pay a lot more for that because we really thought that they were working in our best interest and we would get what we really valued. Here's the funny thing. When you ask customers, well, how many of those experiences do you have? They say very few and too few. And so it's something they really desire, but so many sellers actually miss that. So there's a huge opportunity for sellers to actually change their perspective and and, uh, relate to buyers in a whole new way. Well, how, how much of that do you think has to do with sellers not really necessarily believing in their product? Um, you know, I mean, because you, you, you basically have to, to really believe that you, what you can do is actually solve your customer's problem before this approach makes any sense, right? Yeah, I think there's a, a big element of confidence in one's product and company that is required and, and confidence in one's self to actually represent something to a customer that everyone would feel proud about 
the funny thing is, you know, often people say, well, there's only one best, and, you know, I'm not working for a company that has the best in class. And when you talk with clients, you say, are you looking for the very best thing, or are you looking for good choices uh, that will help you get or solve the problem you're trying to solve, get the result you're trying to get? They often say, we're not looking for the best thing out there. We're looking for something that will help us get what we want. And so it's easy to have confidence in, in what you're delivering if, if it will really help a client get what they value. So and if you're yes, honest you have to have that. confidence. And you have to be honest. Pardon me? And you have to be honest. It would seem. You do have to be honest. And we, we carve those things out. We call them yellow lights, right? So if something doesn't smell right or feel right or, or you're sensing it's not right, say it. Tactfully put that on the table with a client and just say to them, as I'm hearing you describe what you're saying or what you're looking for, we may not be the best fit. Here's what my concern is. What do you think we ought to do? And often they'll actually say, well, hold on a minute. Let's keep talking through this because I'm not so sure that there isn't a good fit here. And so honesty, you know, it's a kind of a, a cliche, if you will, but, uh, but honesty really pays. It, it does uh, help you get what you want by helping other people get what they want and being straight with them. Yeah, that's, that's a relief, you know, <laughs> because, wow, it's hard. It's so hard. I, I, for me, in my life, uh, I, I found out pretty early on that it's so much easier for me to just be pretty much honest. I mean, I don't think anyone's literally 100% honest, but uh, you know, in personal relationships and, and business and everything else, to be as close to honest as I can, because then I don't have to remember what I said. You know, exactly. I don't have to remember what I told people. You're exa- you're exactly right. And here's the here's a funny thing. I mean, just put our put ourselves in any situation, social, business, whatever it is, you ask almost any human being, can you sense when somebody's not being straight with you? And what do we all say? Yes, you Yeah, do. absolutely we can sense this. Even if you well, don't know exactly what the problem is, you know that there is a problem. Exactly. So if you're in sales and you're not being straight with a customer and you think they don't know, I mean, the only person you're fooling is yourself. They know. Uh, I, I like uh, – I, I looked through uh, quite a bit of the book, by the way, and it's it's uh, very well written, easy to understand. Uh, it certainly does not talk down to people. A lot of the sales kind of oriented stuff gets so much into the kind of the hokey, you know, motivational stuff, and it just sounds hokey. Yours is written intelligently, you know, not esoterically, but certainly intelligently yet uh, clearly, and, and I think you do a really good job on it. Before we get into more details, which I think there's there's – well worth getting into, you know, your actual approach. It, it, I had a question. It, it seemed to me, um, just kind of from the overview, that this kind of sales approach uh, or, or, or your ability to, to really throw yourself into uh, your kind of sales approach probably applies more to, to the higher end kind of sales. In other words, if you're just selling a huge volume of something uh, cheap and disposable, that's probably less relevant than if you're uh, actually going to be interacting on an ongoing basis with, say, a relatively few number of relatively high-end customers. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, uh, it, but not that stark. I, I would say that you know wherever you are as a seller interacting with a customer over you know, some multiple-step sales cycle – this is a good book for you because it, it, it will give 
practical how to to actually uh, bridge the gap and and win more business and and that could be selling something pretty simple at a, a low uh, dollar value uh, up to something very complex but the, i think the 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 qualifier is more how how many steps there are in the sales cycle and how you interact with the client not necessarily the complexity of the product or or pricing of it okay well that makes sense the the other question or just thought that i had about um about all this it just slipped my mind so let's move on it'll come back it always does uh why don't we get into your key beliefs you have five key beliefs that kind of uh, set up y- your philosophy and approach oh i know what i was going to say um it, it seems to me it's also pretty required um that your company back you up on this because this approach may take more patience may take a little more time does that make sense too well i think that's a common uh belief that i would challenge um I, I would suggest that following this process is actually more efficient is actually faster because one of the things you're able to do is find the opportunities you shouldn't be chasing and get out of those and invest your time in the ones you should be chasing and you should be pursuing and the the prescribed methods that we lay out actually help you get to decision gates sooner rather than later. Uh, so I would suge- suggest that it's actually, in the end, faster, even though it might first look like it might take more time. Okay, well, I'm dead wrong. Well, not dead wrong. It's a common <laughs> belief. I mean, people commonly look at this process of ours and they say, oh, my gosh, I don't have time to spend all this uh, time with a client and understand what's going on for them. Lay the groundwork. They- Pardon? Lay the groundwork. Yeah, but sometimes somehow they feel they do have time to uh, submit proposals that will never be purchased, to uh, pursue conversations with with no defined end or no decision at the end of them. So it, it's just a, I guess it's just a shift uh, from chasing numbers to working a little bit smarter, doing more on less instead of doing more with less. Well, that makes perfect sense too. Uh, before we forget, because sometimes we do, we get caught up in fascinating conversations uh, is there a website that you can uh, we can refer people to absolutely you can find out all about us and our book uh, at uh, franklincovey.com and uh, when you go to franklincovey.com you can just go to the sales performance group and that's us okay and covey is c-o-b-e-y it is okay excellent well, let's get back to let's let's get a little, into a little more detail then um, would you like to run through the the key beliefs that you start off with? Well, we can, and I and I uh, I would offer another track uh, for the amount of time we have, which is, uh, you know, in this economy, one of the things we're we're often faced with is how do you sell in this kind of an economy when customers are being more conservative than ever with their with their money, and I think the the fundamental idea around that is to if you can't help your clients figure out the economic return on whatever it is you're selling and compare it to the other choices that they have you're not going to succeed in any economy and it's more true in this economy than than ever and so as you read through our book i think the there's just a tremendous amount of practical guidance on how you create the business case 
and build momentum for what it is, what solution it is you want to put on the table for a given client to help them get to a point where they see good return and they can move ahead with you. If you, if you can't do that, you're not going to sell in this economy or in any economy, but it's much difficult, more difficult right now. Okay, well, so far I'm 0 for 4, so let's just keep up with the uh, my perfect record of being wrong every time. And, now, uh, come on, you're not wrong every time. No, I'm, I'm, I'm joking, uh, kind of. Uh, why don't you, can you give us an example of that then? Uh, maybe walk us through that process that you just described, because it certainly sounds extremely important in all economies, but certainly a slow one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the fundamental ideas that we believe in is that solutions, so our product or given solution, uh, actually has no inherent value. And it actually derives value from either solving a problem that someone cares about or helping someone, a company or a person, achieve a result that they assign high value to. And yet when you look at sales, sales is often about advocating something, about telling about our product or our experiences. And somehow we think that customers will hear that and suddenly want to buy it. And we skip this fundamental idea that, no, actually we've got to understand what's going on for them. So we lay out a five-step model for understanding what the key business situation is that a client is facing that includes the first, the key business issues that they want to address, the problems they're facing or results they want to achieve. How those things show up, we call that evidence. So how would that manifest in the business? What's it worth, impact? So dollars and cents, what's it cost to own the problem you have or what's the upside of the result you'll get if you address that? The fourth step is context. And we're talking here about, well, who does this affect? I mean, your customers, your employees, other departments. So who's involved in this, in, in this, in this game? And then uh, last is constraints. What might actually prevent the client from, from moving ahead? And that forms the first element of, of the business case. So it's a very straightforward, we call it structured conversation, that's easy for people to use, customers um, are, are willing to engage in that dialogue very often uh, to help the seller understand what's going on in the buyer so that they can begin to quantify that and help the client make a good decision one way or another about moving ahead or not. Wow. Well, that makes perfect sense and is very logical. Um, now, I just, again, kind of have random thoughts because that's the way my disjointed brain works. Um, being that you are advocating, we are advocating honesty, um, presenting difficult questions. Uh, all, all of all of this is toward the end of of assisting the customers uh, in, in in whatever way you can, reduce costs, improve efficiency, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it seems to me, in the course of doing that, um, you need to be very careful how you present those difficult questions or you know uh, et cetera et cetera et cetera you you absolutely <clears throat> pardon me you absolutely do uh you know sometimes if you think back on any interaction you've had with another person sometimes the toughest conversations are actually the ones that build the relationship and yet if not dealt with in a tactful way they can actually do the opposite they can crush the relationship and so because of that fear 
people often avoid tough conversations, asking tough questions. And so one of the things that we've done is, is framed actual uh, script-like approaches for how you ask tough questions, uh, how you put challenging situations on the table. And we're not suggesting you know, read the book and follow our scripts exactly. What we're suggesting is there's a pattern to how you would communicate that uh, once made authentic to your personality and natural for the way that you communicate will enable you to put tough situations on the table in a way that's tactful and people will be willing to talk to you about it. Well, that sounds good, too. I can always use help in that regard. I'm not always terribly <laughs> tactful. And by the way, what is your? how do you pronounce your co-author's name? Mahan Khalsa. That's what I would have guessed. Sometimes I'm right. Hey, I'm I was just going to say that. <laughs> I'm one for five. You know, I'm hitting 200. It's not great, you know, but I'm at the Mendoza line for baseball, but... But uh, you're, you're yeah. deliberately you're deliberately asking those silly questions, you know, to represent the average listener. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's it. That's presenting it common misconceptions. <laughs> I'm playing devil's advocate. Sure, sure. By the way, I, I love in the book how on every is it every well it's almost every page or at least many pages you have a, a very interesting. Uh, uh, quotes from people, and and it's a broad cross section. You have the East, the West, and by East I mean Asia, uh, and, and the West, uh, the Western world. You have business, you have literature, you have all kinds of people. Uh, very pithy quotes, you know, uh, supporting that. That shows uh, quite a bit of learning here. How did you track those quotes down? Well, I'd have to give that credit to Mahan. Uh, Mahan has collected a lot of those quotes throughout his uh, career, and as we talked about the structure of the book, he said to me uh, one day when we were working on it, you know, I'd like to build these quotes in. I've I've collected these all my life, and we kind of went through them, and, and so I'd give all that credit to him. I think he did a nice job, and thanks for carving that out. No problem. Yeah, I I always like little sidebar things or quotes or you know it just it gives you it broadens your context and and it gives you something to think about that that kind of takes you out of the immediate setting and 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 broadens things out a bit. And yeah, I, I always enjoy that. I it's it's nice to have uh, you know some some different perspectives and some variety and uh, I don't know. There's just something about uh, you know authoritative quotes that. Uh, that probably uh, psychologically, anyway, you know, really help bring home the message to to your readers. You know, have, have sure. an air an air of authority about it. All right. Well, um, Philip, you, we've you've heard me go uh, one for five. Any any questions here? By the way, if if you're if you can stay with us, we we tonight, unlike a lot of nights where we have four fifteen minute segments, tonight we're actually on two half hour segments and. Uh, so uh, we do have a little bit more time, if that's okay with you. Okay with me? Yes. I'd love to spend a little bit more time with you. Excellent. We've already used 22 minutes, so that went pretty quickly, I must say. So, uh, <laughs> Philip, Lisa, any thoughts, questions, different perspectives? Well, unfortunately, and we've just been talking about this in the chat room, uh, you're the only one of the three of us that's actually seen a copy of the book yet, uh, Eric. So that puts us at a little bit of a handicap, but I, I'm very interested in – I mean, I guess, does this book mostly grow out of things that Franklin Covey's done in seminars, or is it is it something new for Franklin Covey, or, or how, does it, how does it come about? 
Well, how the book really came about is through Mahan and and my individual experiences running businesses and selling throughout our lives. I met Mahan about 10 years ago uh, because uh, I owned a company and I was looking for uh, a very robust approach to getting great at selling because we weren't. And I met him, and he helped me, and we stayed in touch. And, and so the book comes out of field experience, doing this for real. So it didn't come out of the laboratory. Um, nothing wrong with laboratory books, but this isn't one of them. Um, and the connection to, to Franklin Covey is Franklin Covey uh, acquired uh, Mahan's company some, some years ago. And, and uh, we've both done some work for, for Franklin Covey and continue to do so. So that's our, our overall connection. But the book really comes from doing this. Well, what kind of response have you seen so far from people who are, you know, I guess on either side, but primarily from, from salespeople who've read it and tried to apply it already in their career? Well, we've been applying this, uh, this whole approach uh, for you know more than 10 years and worked literally with thousands of, of salespeople all around the globe, different countries, different languages, different kinds of companies. And, and uh, you know people love this stuff. Now now, like anything, there are there are groupies to any kind of idea. And so we have a big following of folks who, uh, who sell business to business, uh, products and services that really need to be sold in the context of creating business value. And so literally hundreds of thousands of people use this approach. And the book is selling very, very well. We're delighted with, with how well it's doing. And and so uh, it's got a pretty big following. Cool. Hey, I, I want to talk about, because at first I was slightly confused about the meaning of the term until I, you know, I thought about it for a second. But clearly, it's it's really key for salespeople of every kind, and that is uh, qualifying. And, and and I assume by that you mean you're qualifying the opportunity, you're qualifying the the potential buyer. Is that correct? Well, y- yes. And we look at qualifying a little bit more holistically than that. Like qualifying is normally uh, the standard sales definition is. Uh, can this customer buy? Do they have money? Are they the right people? Those kinds of things. So if you think about those kinds of qualification questions, they're very much focused on the seller's side of that equation, and that's important. When we think of qualification, we also include in that the buyer's side of that qualification. Right? So if there isn't a strong business case, it really doesn't matter about any of those other qualification elements. If they can't see very clearly that solving a problem or creating a result and and doing that with their resources makes good sense for their business, they're not going to move ahead regardless of how sexy or novel or how well-priced or positioned our product is. So we think of qualification in the context of both the, the buyer and the seller. Well, that makes perfect sense. Gosh, we're... We, we we have burned nearly a half hour. It's, uh, well, I hope we weren't burning it. It's kind of amazing. Well, I, I mean that always in the positive sense. Cause, man, <laughs> there is nothing that is less fun than, than when the conversation does not go. And you're sitting there counting not only minutes, but seconds. Oh, my God, was that only 30 seconds? Holy <laughs> crap. 
No, uh, that's always good. No, that's that. Well, I mean, fortunately, that's... fortunately, we very, very rarely have had those moments here on BC Radio Live. Yeah, we really have because we all blab a lot, especially me. <laughs> and if you do, you can talk about American Idol. Well, oh well, there you go. We fill in the most random, completely random things. It's absolutely amazing to me. Now, is, is this book aimed more at the uh, experienced salesperson, or what, one of the things I found frustrating when I when I engaged in a very, very, very brief career career in sales um, was that a lot of the books, e- either intentionally or unintentionally, seem to assume that you're, you know, familiar with with more than I was at least. I mean, like I, I know Eric, you know. Uh, not knowing the term qualifying, that that was something I remember reading about. But uh, h- how much knowledge should someone have before picking up this book? Well, I, I want to just point out, I don't mean to sound like, well, this book is for everyone, and yet at the same time, here's what people tell me. Whether they're brand new to sales or they've been doing it all their life, when they work with us or they read our material, they all get things out of it. They get different things. So the the newbie, you know, somebody that's brand new to selling says, oh, my gosh, I found a process. I found something that I can replicate and go do, and I, I, I now know how to move forward. While someone that's been doing this for 25 years will say, they might zero in on a, in a, on a particular thing and say, uh, you know, my gosh, I've, I've forgotten how important it was to really get uh, totally dialed into the decision-making process and the work that you did around that just really brought that back to life and I'm going to reincorporate that into what I'm doing. So so it, there's pretty broad applicability and, and value recognition wherever people are on that continuum of experience. Oh, very good. Fortunately, it's got a lot of stuff in it. So, you know, even if you only only find one or two things in the book, 10% of the book, you're still getting your money's worth. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, and you know that's often how salespeople think, right? Like if they can make an investment and get one or two good nuggets out of it that help them uh, do their jobs better and, and uh, further what their causes are with their families, their companies, and their their uh, clients, it's a it's a good return. And and you know if you look at the ratings that the book has on Amazon or any place else, they're pretty solid. I did. Yeah, you've got the. Uh... You know, it's always suspicious when you see only five-star ratings because it's hard to believe that not not even one kook has found something. But, I mean, even your low ratings tend to be three, four stars and say, wow, I really like this book, but, you know, some little complaint here or there. So I, it seems to be extremely well regarded on Amazon. Yeah, I think we've been very fortunate um, <clears throat> that, that uh, the book resonates with people and, and the approach resonates to, with people. I think it's pretty clear that it was it, it is you know hard won the information in here and that you guys didn't just sit down and write a book but that it has stuff that you've been working on well you said for 10 years I, I think that's that's pretty clear and I'm sure that's a large part of why people have responded as well as they have because it's it's tried and true stuff that that you have worked out in the real world Absolutely very good. Well, the book is called Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play: Transforming the Buyer-Seller Relationship. It's available now at Amazon.com. Uh, you can also find information at FranklinCovey.com. And thank you very much for talking with us tonight, Randy. Well, thank you, Philip and Lisa and Eric. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to, to be on your show and, and uh, have a, a great balance of the day. Thank you very much. You too. Good luck. 
Well, BC Radio Live is a production of blogcritics.org, BC Magazine, and is broadcast weekly at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio, which is where we are right now. With Eric and Lisa, I am Philip. Talent, I say, is overrated. And I'm not just, well, not, not, not only being a bitter loser here. That's actually the title of Jeff Holden's book, Talent is Overrated, What Really Separates World-Class Performers from Everybody Else. His website is jeffcolvin.com, that's G-E-O-F-F-C-O-L-V-I-N.com, and he suggests that the key to success isn't necessarily innate talent, but the result of, uh, well, let's actually, let's ask him. Welcome to BC Radio Live, Jeff. <laughs> uh, hi, it's great to talk to you. Well, well, yeah. What is it the result of? Um, uh, well, that, yeah, that's, that's, uh, why don't you tell us? <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, the, the, and, I'll, and let me say before I say, tell it that um, this is not my own opinion that we're stating here. The, the book is based on a bunch of scientific research that I uh, have come across and really been fascinated by, and it's quite impressive. Anyway, uh, the answer as to what really separates world-class performers from everybody else is what the researchers call Deliberate practice. And I Thank you. Good night. <laughs> the answer. Just <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, no, I mean, um, it isn't what most of us think of when we think we're practicing something. I learned, for example, that what I do on the driving range at the golf course is a pathetic example of practice as the researchers actually describe it. It's a very specific activity, although pretty straightforward, and that is what all the world's great performers in every field seem to have in common. They do it a lot, sometimes hours a day for years on end, and it does create great performers. Well, it certainly makes sense because I, we were just talking in, in between work and, and getting back to the office for the show tonight. My my nine-year-old daughter is quite a talented singer, and she's had a lot of real, real positive uh, feedback, and she's had, a, for, for her age, a, a number, I, I mean dozens, of public performances, and I, I I can't think of any that haven't gone well. But we keep telling her. The older you get, the farther you go, you're going to run into more and more people who have the same natural abilities you do, who have that same talent, who have that same knack, but they may work harder than you because she does not like to practice. She, she, has, she takes a weekly class. She practices there. She works on it if she feels like it. If she really likes the song, she'll work on it more on her own. She'll work on it on her own just prior to a performance, but right. but that's it. And we and we were just telling her that this kind of stuff is the kind of stuff where you have to do it over and over and over till it's just absolutely second nature, where you don't have to think about it. Right. And in that story about your daughter, you have touched on so many elements of this that are really important. Everything you say is exactly right. Uh, she's going to run into more and more people. Uh, as she gets better, as she advances. And what is going to distinguish one from the other is how much of this practice activity they put into it. Now, in music, practice is, of course, a you know well-understood, well-defined, and well-accepted uh, concept. People know how to do it, and they understand the importance of it. Uh, you also touched on something that's really important, which is 
she seems to be good for her age. And in almost any activity, it turns out that if you're especially good for your age, that's a huge advantage because you, you said something else. You said she gets a lot of praise for it. Uh, this is one of the advantages. If you get a lot of praise, that can be a good motivator, and it triggers what some of the researchers call the multiplier effect, you know, a small advantage that then builds and builds and builds. You know, you get, you get some praise that makes you work a little harder, you get a little better, you attract better teachers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but there is no shortcut to great success. That's one of the main lessons from all this research. But that's, that's excellent news, and this is the point that is most important in the book, because what it says is you don't need that one-in-a-million gift, that special targeted ability that we all think you've either got or you don't. In fact, you don't need that. And there are even some researchers who say that targeted gifts, you know, things that make somebody a great oboe player or golfer or jet pilot or organizational leader, that those targeted gifts may not even exist. It's what you do in the way of regular, hard, demanding, deliberate practice. In other words, great achievement is available to everybody. You don't have to have that one in a million magical thing. Well, that is encouraging to those of us who have many interests, uh, but not, not you know, super spectacular gifts in any one area. I've always felt pulled, my whole life, pulled in different directions. I'm interested in this, I'm interested in that, I'm interested in yep. writing, I'm interested in music, on and on yep. and on. And, yep. and yet no one of them has ever absolutely, you know, just grabbed me by the throat and been the really obvious thing for me to do. And at times I felt it's a disadvantage because I, 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 I'm easily distracted. I'm, I'm, oh, wow, that's interesting. I, I'm really focused on this, but, oh, that's really interesting. But you're saying that approach to life can also work as long as you are willing to practice, you know, at the various things that you're interested in. You can't expect to be good without practice. You can't expect to be good without practice, and you can expect to be good uh, with the practice. That is absolutely the case. But now you've touched on something else that's really important, which is that the, the – oh, can you hold on half a second? Sorry. This will keep straight for quite a long time. Um, the great world-class performers uh, do make a decision. And, look, if you're going to become Tiger Woods, you know, you're not going to have much time in your life for anything other than golf. And so they do make a decision where they say, I am not going to go down all these other roads. I am going to focus on one. I'm going to, you know, give up these other things I might have thought about doing, and I am going to focus entirely on this one thing. And th that is a price that true world-class performance demands. And it's a real choice that people have to make about their lives. You know, am I going to do this or not? And I, and I don't say it's an obvious choice. You know, people have lives to think about. You've got to decide how much you're willing to um, sacrifice. But that really is what it comes down to. What, what came to my mind, you mentioned Tiger Woods, of course, and, and, and I think sports 
maybe it's just easier to understand uh, you know the the analogy or the application of, of your uh, of, of that concept to sports because you know we can visualize that actual and like music too of course we can visualize the actual specific actions involved with the practice but what came to mind just now to me when you were talking i was picturing those little tiny gymnast girls and oh, yeah. and people you know people it really is. It's something you have to – I mean, I can – like so many things. I see both sides of it. You know, on the one hand, my God, these poor little girls or boys or whoever, they don't have lives. You know, from, from dusk to dawn, everything is dictated. They have they have nothing but this specific uh, event, this act, one activity from a very, very, very early age. And, you know, in China they're talking about the gymnasts uh, uh, taking over, going to gymnast school dedicating their lives to it at three years old. And yeah. and so that's the one side of it. Uh, that, that's awful. It's terrible. How can they do that? On the other side of it, you, you talk to athletes, you talk to people, and, and what little success I had in the athletic arena, uh, I mean, it's it's a tremendous feeling to be good at those things. Right. And, and, right. It's, and to be world-class, my goodness, you know, I mean, how unusual is that? And you don't hear that many athletes uh, coming out of it, you know, uh, down the road, who say that they regret it. Some do, but not too many, it doesn't seem like to me. Yeah, and and what you are talking about there is a big question for all of us who are parents, because especially in sports and in music, if a kid is going to become truly world-class, they have to start unbelievably early. Uh, you know, I mean, Tiger, Tiger Woods' father put a club in his hand at the age of seven months, um, was teaching him and taking him to the course for practice at the age of two. Uh, and the gymnasts you mentioned, you know, now they get started at the age of three and so forth. And the advantages of deliberate practice, the effects, are cumulative. The more thousands of hours you can rack up, the better you will be. And frankly, that is why Tiger is the world's dominant golfer, and nobody will ever catch him, because he has more accumulated hours of intense, deliberate practice than anybody else on the tour, and he he continues to be about the hardest working man in golf. So he continues to rack up even more thousands of hours every year, which means as long as he wants to keep this up, nobody's going to catch him. Now... Was it good for his father to start him down this road at an age when he couldn't possibly make up his own mind about it? Or, as you say, was it maybe barbaric, you know, for a parent to do this to a kid? Now, in Tiger's case, it was great. He loved his father. He adored his father. He became the world's greatest golfer. It's all a wonderful, wonderful story. But we also encountered, we've all seen the stories of parents who push too hard, who make the kids angry and resentful, and uh, it, it is really tough. But but as parents, we got to decide. Are we going to push them early when they're still too young to make up their own mind? I was talking to a friend of mine about this. His daughter at age six had just started taking piano lessons, and the parents said to the piano teacher, uh, do you think she could ever really be a, a truly great pianist? And the teacher said, no, it's too late. 
Wow. You know, wow. <laughs> she can be great. She can have a lot of fun. You know, she can be excellent. But she'll, she can't be the world's greatest. So this is the world we're in. It is amazing. It's it's not even. I was just thinking as you as you said it. You know about the accumulated hours, and obviously the younger you start, the more hours you can accumulate. Um, but but the younger you are, the more malleable you are too, of course. Yeah, and, yeah, and there's interesting, fascinating research on that and how your brain works. You, 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 deliberate practice not only gives you you know knowledge and ability; it literally, actually, changes your brain. Uh, certain areas of your brain get bigger as a result of this, and scientists have studied it. And the effect is largest when you're a kid, although it can still happen when you're an adult. We didn't used to think that was true. We'd all been taught that, you know, after adulthood, you can't grow any new neurons. You can't your, – your brain isn't malleable. In fact, it is. And And, by the way, the other thing is, you know, we're talking about sports and music, you know, and you've got to start by the age of three. Hold on, please. Left here. Um, you've got to start by the age of three. And so fortunately, it isn't the, that way in business, in what most of us do for a living. Nobody starts developing little Donald Trumps and Jack Welch's <laughs> at the age of four, you know. Richie Rich. <laughs> you see that movie? Did you, did you see the Richie Rich movie? Do you remember the scene where, in fact, they were teaching them to be little Jack Welch's and Donald Trump's, and they were all in class, and Ben Stein was the teacher and so forth. It was very funny. Anyway, in real life, nobody really does it. We don't start until we get out of school. So, um, you know, it, we actually have a much greater chance to get a good start. Hey, Lisa, guess what I was thinking about when when uh, when – when the topic just came up a few minutes ago about about adults being able to learn and whatnot. Yes. What what was I thinking about? Uh, you were thinking about my husband playing the banjo at an advanced stage. Exactly. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, my husband <clears throat> took up the banjo about, uh, I guess, maybe two years ago now. And he's he's in his late 50s. He's and much, much older than, than you, of course. He's he's much older than everybody we know. He's like older yes. than dirt, but that's not the point here. He's he's a he's a big believer in the notion that learning new things, you know, will will keep him young and keep his brain alive. And um, he pra- he comes upstairs every night and practices for an hour. And he's you know well aware of the fact that he's not ever going to be Earl Scruggs, but he's. He's learned something, never having picked up an instrument in his yeah. life. Yeah. You know. Yep. Yeah. And 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 what a great story, because uh, it it shows a number of things. One, you know, by applying oneself, it really is possible uh, to do this. Um, and you know, and he can have a lot of fun and. You know, and get tremendous enjoyment, and be, and frankly, become much better than sort of conventional wisdom would tell you was possible. Uh, it's also good that he's being realistic about it, because you know, starting at that age, you're right. He's not going to be Earl Scruggs, um, but so what? You know, uh, as long as he's realistic, it's a great thing. Yeah, I personally just I just don't want to be the world class 
anything just because I'm too lazy. On the radio. I'm sorry, I missed it. No, I've decided I don't want to be world class anything because I'm I'm just far too lazy. I don't want to put in that kind of work. Well, and see, that's a perfectly legitimate decision to make, in my opinion. You know, uh, here's an interesting story I think uh, that illustrates it pretty well. Uh, There was a—it's the story of the Polgar sisters. Some people know the story; most people don't seem to. There was a guy in Hungary named Laszlo Polgar who decided that it was possible to raise a kid to be a true great world-class performer at pretty much anything if you really focused on it. And he—he—he wrote a book about it. He advertised for a woman who would marry him so that they could have kids and put his theory into practice. And incredibly enough, he found such a woman. They got married. They had three daughters. And he decided, they decided, to make them great, truly great, world-class great chess players. And so from the time these girls were three or four years old, They did basically nothing but chess. They were schooled at home. They never went to a school. They simply stayed at home, and all day, every day, they worked on chess. They had to learn other stuff. The authorities demanded that they, you know, pass tests for school subjects. But their lives were devoted to chess, and they, in fact, became the highest-rated female chess players on planet Earth. Um, Some of them became in the top ten of all chess players. Um, The youngest one, Judith Polgar, became the youngest player of either sex to become a grandmaster. She did it months earlier than Bobby Fischer had done it many years before. And yet, when they got to be 20 or 21, two of them gave it up. And as one of them said memorably, it isn't that chess was too much for me, it wasn't enough. She wanted to have a life, you know. Mm-hmm. She said, I, I, I just don't want to pursue this anymore. There's more to life than this. And there's nothing wrong with that. You, you, we all have lives, and you all, we all have to make a decision about what we're going to devote ourselves to. So that's I, fine. The, a positive side of, the, of that, too, um, is I, I am certain that, that she – Having achieved that level of skill at anything, doesn't matter what, anything, at that relatively early in age, 2021, could apply those same skills, those same learning skills, those practice skills, uh, ways of thinking, modeling, et cetera, et cetera, to anything else that she would do. So it's not like the time was wasted. Oh, uh, absolutely not. I mean, you know, here's someone who would become incredibly skilled um, at something, and so it's it's a wonderful thing to have done, and it enriched her life enormously, no matter what else she wanted to do. I've always felt that that sports, you you get a lot of, there's, you know, again, there's two sides to everything. There's, There's kind of our whole... Our whole culture, and it's certainly not only the U.S. In a lot of ways, it's it's most of, or much anyway of the world are kind of sports nuts, and we admire, you know, whatever the sport may be, we really admire and put on pedestal the people who have 
who have actually very, if you think about it, stop and think about it, very arcane kind of skills, or you know, they're huge, they're fast, or this, or that, that has right. relatively little to do with the real world. But uh, I've always thought, felt that the true importance of sports and and what really does justify and and I think um, you know makes their their place of prominence, if not you know fully justified, at least to my mind personally you know, mostly justified, is just that, that you are picking up those skills. You are learning how to do something. You're learning teamwork. You're learning how to push yourself. You're learning what your own limits are, how to push up against those limits, perhaps go past them, uh, but but also know when to pull back. Because, you know, if you're injured, you can't do anything. You can't practice. You can't play. So uh, those skills, it seems to me, you know, really are important and applicable and and uh, you know there's lots and lots of studies that that um that show you know kind of just that uh if you do sports to the neglect of your studies then you know that's a whole other thing if you get by on sports alone and you keep getting promoted up because simply because you're good at sports that's not doing anyone any favors i don't think but you know if you have a bal- rel- relatively balanced life and you're 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 at least uh, you know getting by uh, uh, with your studies that uh, that sports really is uh, a a very good foundation for life and you know it seems like a lot of people do well in business you know uh, who've been good in sports uh, you know it's a lot of it's the social aspect of it but social aspect counts yeah that it, it does count and I, I think you put your finger on it to you know most importantly. The success in sports has taught them essentially the the message of this book, the lesson of this book, which is that uh, on the one hand, there isn't any shortcut. There isn't any magic in becoming great. It's a matter of uh, demanding application uh, over a long period of time. And it is hard. It really is asking a lot. But the good side of it, the great side of it, is that it works. Uh, if you are willing to do it, you will achieve uh, success. And if people have learned that through sports, uh, they are way ahead of everybody else when it comes to the rest of life because it's just as true in business, in anything else you want to do, as it is in sports. Very well, nice. it's a double-edged sword, like you say. <laughs> yeah, it, well, the- it is. It is, but but the, but it is ultimately a liberating message, and and this is what I always try to emphasize. It, it is ultimately a liberating message because it tells people that it it doesn't matter if they think they haven't been given this special gift. Doesn't matter. Uh, they can still be really really good performers. By the way, congrats. Speaking of success, congratulations on the success of the book. I, I was. Uh... Saw some some really uh, you know you're like around a hundred in Amazon. It's already been out for a couple months, so usually you know they they peak right away, and uh, you know it's been really well received. It appears uh, it, it really has been. It's just been doing terrifically, and uh, I, I'm so so happy about it because I frankly did, didn't know what to expect. Um, as of uh, this moment when we're speaking, it is on. Bestseller lists uh, in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Business Week, and uh, it, it's just uh, it, it's been just great. Um, That's very exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. 
Oh, Jeff's website is jeffcolvin.com. That's G-E-O-F-F-C-O-L-V-I-N.com. And the book is called Talent is Overrated, What Really Separates World-Class Performers from Everybody Else. Uh, thank you very much for spending time with us on the show tonight, Jeff. Hey, it's my great pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Re- real, very interesting stuff. Very provocative. Now I had to go back and think. <laughs> well, we have reached the end of the show for this week, yet another week. Please do join us again next week. In fact, join us every week. In fact, go through the archives and listen to all the past weeks. Uh, thanks to, again to Jeff Colvin. Thanks Dedicate your life to it. Practice. <laughs> That's right. Uh, thanks also to Randy Yelling for earlier on the show, uh, and of course, special thanks to Lisa and Eric for hosting the show. I'm Philip Wynn, and this has been BC Radio Live. We do broadcast live every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, so be sure to visit us to participate in the chat room, watch the live video feed. Uh, if you miss the live broadcast, audio archives are available online, or you can subscribe to the podcast to have BC Radio Live delivered to you each and every week automatically. And uh, thank you all, and aloha until next week. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.